an amazing story inside us. Somebody asked me what book I would most like to read. And the one that I wanted to read is the one that I will never read because it will never be written. And I'd love to have read a book written by my grandmother. She was born in the 1800s in Glenelg. Now I have to explain. I know I'm in London. Glenelg is on the west coast of Scotland. It is in the middle of the middle of absolutely bloody nowhere. <laughs> and she grew up there. And her life would have been, I suspect to her, really not of any consequence. But to me, because she was the most important person in my life, I would want to know her story. You've heard incredible stories from people tonight, every single one of us has that story inside us. And it's our duty to write it down. It, we might think it's not at all important, but to your children and to your grandchildren and to the generations that you don't know are coming along yet, they're the ones that you need to write your story for, not for yourself, because it will matter to them. So when I was coerced by some lovely people who are sitting in this audience tonight, to write a book. I write textbooks. I write textbooks that two people in the entire world will ever read. <laughs> and they, they asked me to write a book that would talk about the kinds of things that I do. And I, I complained about it for a very long time. But my conscience said, you know, if this is for my children and my grandchildren, these are the things that I want them to know. I'm a scientist and I'm a forensic scientist. By the way, there is no such thing as forensic science. There is only science as you give it in the courtroom. Because forensic is a word that comes from forensis, which means pertaining to the forum, the courts of Rome. And so we go into court as scientists, the most alien place on the planet. Now, when we go into court, we take an oath. So ladies and gentlemen, Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Keep your hands up. So you have now sworn in front of all of these people here present to tell the truth and the whole truth. Keep your hands up if you watch CSI. Shame on you. It's the biggest load of tosh on the planet. It's almost as good as silent witless, as Val McDermott calls it. So that these are programs that are about entertainment. They're not about our world. And if it was about our world, my goodness me, I would be a size eight and I would be about 30 years old, and I'd have a gun strapped to my thigh. My God, that is, doesn't even bear thinking about. <laughs> but there are two very important things that these programs do. The first one is it impacts on our youngsters who are going through school, might not be in the 
challenged in school, might not be enjoying it, and they think, oh, this forensic stuff's cool. I'm going to be a forensic scientist, because that's what it looks like on the television. And they get into university and they find they have to learn statistics and probability and the kind of things that they think, this is what I signed up, that's not in CSI. <laughs> and the second thing that happens is what happens to you, is that you are the triers of fact. In the courtroom, the most important people in the courtroom are the jury. And the jury is made up of the public. And the jury will decide on guilt and innocence. And because we watch that brain-rotting <laughs> television programs, we think that we're more forensically aware than we really are. <laughs> so stop it. <laughs> what do we do? We're, we're the modern sin eaters, and we've been described as the modern sin eaters. We are the people who go and do things and see things that most people should never, ever have to do. We are the people who will go down into the tunnels after the London bombings. We're the people who will go into Grenfell Tower. We are the people who will go to Thailand for the thousands of bodies that are washed up on the beach. The mass graves in Syria, the mass graves in Iraq. Our job is to try to identify the stories that are inside those bodies. And we all have stories. Our job is just to find them. Because if we're going to prosecute somebody, we need to know who you are or who you were. And right built into everything we do is about your identity. And I think it was Steve Jobs who said, once you get old enough, you have this wonderful luxury of being able to stop and turn around and look at where you've come from. And in doing that, you can see the decisions that you made. I grew up adoring my grandmother. My grandmother being a West Coaster, as we would call a Tuchter from the West Coast, believed in second sight. And she believed in ghosts. And she believed she could see them. And she could talk to them. So for my grandmother, death was her friend. And her friend walked with her throughout her entire life. And because she grew up in Glen Elg in the 1800s, it would have been utterly improper for a lady of her generation to have a friend who was a man. So for her, death was female. And for her, death was something that could be kind and compassionate, something that could be a genuine friend and a blessing. And because I stuck to her like glue, from the age of dot, I had an incredible education associated with death. We never talked about people passing. We never talked about people being lost. As far as my grandmother was concerned, you were dead. A spade is a shovel in Glen Elg. There's no room for sentiment. There's no room for it. It's a very, very hard life. So growing up talking with her and hearing what she said, it was never going to be a surprise. My maiden name was Gunn. And my father was the most tremendous shot. And my father would go out and he would shoot pigeons and rabbits and deers or whatever it was. And he would bring them back and my mother was squeamish. So my father would expect me to be the one to skin them and to gut them and to grill them and whatever was needed to be done with the carcasses, even from the age of about seven or eight. So I knew I was never going to be squeamish. And that's really important when you think where my job has gone.
Then my father, when I was 12, said to me, you need to get a job. And I assumed he meant when I grew up and left school. He meant when I was 12, <laughs> you need to get a job. And his rationale was that he wanted to put that classic Scottish Presbyterian work ethic into you. And what he said was, because you need to give half your earnings to your mother for board and lodging. And in doing that, I felt I couldn't not work because my mother relied on that three pounds a week. And that was why I never missed a single day in my job. And my job that I held right the way throughout school was in a butcher shop. Of course it was, because I knew how to skin rabbits and how to pluck pheasants and such things. So working in a butcher shop, when all of my friends were working in Boots the Chemist or Littlewoods, that shows how old I am, I was in a butcher shop loving every single moment of it, learning about bone and muscle and tendon. And I knew that I wasn't going to be squeamish because the thing that we looked forward to more than anything was the day when the van came up from the abattoir. Because when it came up from the abattoir on certain days, it carried livers and the livers came fresh. And in a butcher shop, everything's cold because of fridges and freezers but the livers were always warm. So we would race to be the one who unloaded the livers from the boxes because you'd get the cow blood warming your own. You're never ever gonna be afraid of anything that's dead when you look forward to liver warming up your hands. And then my biology teacher said, you're going to university. I thought, I can't go to university. I'm not clever enough to go to university. No, my family had ever been to university. And so I did as I was told. I went to university. And the first two years were the biggest drag and boredom of my life. I didn't know why the heck I was there. Until in my third year, I decided that what I would do was become a human anatomist. And in human anatomy, you dissect the human body from the top of the head to the bottom of the little toe, and it takes you an entire year to do it. It's just another animal, like I had in the butcher shop. This was just another animal in the equivalent, so that it was bone, and it was muscle, and it was ligament. And at that point, I realized that not only was I not afraid of things that are dead, I was also not afraid of death. And everything that I've done in life has been associated with those who've lost their lives, who've lost their stories. And our job is to try and bring those stories back to them. People often ask me, what's the most influential case that you've ever been involved in? And the truth is every single one is important because it's somebody's story, it's somebody's son, it's somebody's mother. Whilst we might be involved in huge mass fatality events, within that mass fatality, there is a single story. And our job is to try to find them. I'm going to take you to Kosovo. And I'm going to take you to Kosovo in 1999. A family, a father, a mother, the mother's sister, and her mother, and eight children who lived in a village and they were fearful for their lives. So they decided that what they would do is they would live up in the hillside. And every weekend they would come down into the village for provisions if they needed them. 
this particular day when they came down. And bear in mind, Dad's driving a tractor. Everybody else is on the trailer, the eight children and the three adults. As they come down into the, the valley area, a rocket-propelled grenade takes out the trailer. Everybody in the trailer is killed. Dad is snipered. He's shot in the leg. And he manages to crawl away into the undergrowth. And under the cover of darkness, he comes out to try to find what's left of his family, his entire family. Because he knows he can't leave them there. If he does that, the roaming packs of wild dogs will use them as a food source. So he's injured. It's under cover of darkness. And he manages to dig a hole. In the darkness, we know he only ever found the bottom half of his 12-year-old daughter. We know we only, he only found one side of his wife's body. But he picked them up. <clears throat> he buried them. And then about 18 months later, we come along as the UN and say we want to dig up that site because this is an indictment site against Milosevic. Most of us would say, sling your hook. My family are in the ground and you're not digging them up. But this man had a problem. And his problem was that his family were all buried together in one hole in the ground. And he was concerned that his God could not find them. They all needed their own grave. They all needed their own name. When we exhumed that hole in the ground, we had enough to fill one and a half body bags, which was filled, bear it remember, with 11 people. So what we did in the mortuary was we laid out 12 sheets and we went through what was left of these bodies that had been badly exploded into pieces and then not all recovered and now really very, very poorly decomposed. We could find the wife, quite straightforward in terms of her description and her age and her identification, and therefore her sister and her mother. So the adults were not a problem. And it brought me back to Paul's story about the children. What we now had were eight children. Eight children who varied from eight months in age to, to two twin 14-year-old boys. Now, it would have been very tempting to take what we had and just separate it out into the bags. Who'd know? You can't do that. That's utterly disrespectful, first of all, not something that we would do. It's also illegal. So that if at some point along the line a defense lawyer was to come along and say, we're going to open up that hole in the ground, and if what's in there is not what you say, you're not a credible witness, and none of your evidence and your testimony can be used. The little baby who was six months old was perfectly intact. He was still in his sleep suit, and so he was very straightforward. We then found the two-year-old, or part of the two-year-old, part of the four-year-old, part of the six-year-old. There's a pattern here to the babies. The eight-year-old, the 12-year-old girl, quite rightly, we did only find the bottom part of her. And then we were left with two twin 14-year-old boys. All we had of them was the top of their torso. We only had their shoulders and the top of their chest. But one of those bodies had on a Mickey Mouse, Mickey Mouse vest. And what we said to the police was, go back and speak to the father and say, did any of your children have a Mickey Mouse vest? 
don't tell them which ones we're looking at. And when they came back, they named one of the twin boys. So we were able to separate them. Being able to then hand back an individual body bag with a name on it, knowing full well who it was that was in there, was the least that we were able to do for a man who had lost everything in his life. CSI is a program. The real world of forensic science is dirty science. It's dirty science done on the ground. It's done in a way to try to help any way that we possibly can, but often we don't succeed. When we talk about death, it's held out to be a great taboo. It isn't a taboo, we're all talking about it, just not for ourselves. It's all right to talk about somebody else who's dying or died. Not us, because that's not going to happen, is it? We're never going to die. Do you remember when you were young and you would daydream? And you daydream about the details of maybe, oh, the romanticism of that first kiss or what your wedding was going to look like. How many people daydreamed about what their funeral was going to be like? <laughs> yeah, isn't that normal? It's perfectly normal because it's the once-in-a-lifetime guaranteed thing you're going to do. You never know if you're going to get that kiss. God, my first kiss was a disaster. He had the most awful buck teeth and all we had was a clashing of ivories. Never want to remember that. But I know that I am going to die. So why when you have something that is the most important experience you're ever going to have in your life and it's going to be the end of your life, why wouldn't you plan for it? We don't make wills. We should make wills. Why should our lives be remembered over the squabbling over a glass vase? Gosh, it happens between families. Don't we need to tell people what we want, not just in our death, but in our dying? And it's the dying that worries us. We like the life. We like, we're okay with being dead. It's the bit in the middle, it's a bit of a bugger. We really don't want to have that dying bit. It's a bit messy. And when we talk about our dying, we talk about it negatively. We talk about, I don't want to be in pain. I don't want to be in a care home. I don't want to disgrace myself. I don't want to be in my own. Everything about our death when we talk about it is negative. I'm gonna ask you all, turn that around. Make your death positive, because you can't change it, it's gonna happen. You may as well have the party that you want to have. So for me, I want to live until I'm at least 80. I've only got 22 years to go. Can I say that, you know, in a few years time, I might want it to go a bit further. But the statistics of my life expectancy tell me that, that I should live to about 80. That's good. I want to die where I want to die. I don't want to die where somebody else says I have to die. And I'm a control freak. I want to be in control over how I do it, and when I do it. And I would like to do it at a time that I'm still capable, physically and mentally, of making that decision over my own life. What I will do is that I will donate my body to my anatomy department. I want to be a cadaver. I want to be dissected. <laughs> but the trouble is I want to do the dissection because I want to see what's in there. And I can't do that. So the only other thing I can do is I'm going to ask them to separate out all my soft tissue 
from all of my bones. I'm going to get them to boil my bones down, because you've got to get rid of the fat, and there's a lot of it, but you've got to get rid of it. And then I want them to string my skeleton up in my dissecting room so I can carry on teaching for the rest of my death. <laughs>